Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ray Harkins. We're hanging out at this beautiful podcast, this RSS feed known as 100 Words or Less. I'll bet you haven't thought about an RSS feed in quite some time, but that's exactly what a podcast is for those of you that don't know. We are talking about independent music, not RSS feeds. We are talking to people who are creating this stuff, who are involved with this stuff in whatever capacity or have been impacted by this whole independent music scene in a very deep and meaningful way. Because that's that's what's carried me for so long, and I, I presume that's what's carrying you. We are highlighting the state of North Carolina. This entire month of October, we are focused, laser-like, on the beautiful North Carolina hardcore, punk, whatever scene you want to call it. We've had some great discussions with people who are uh, foundational in the uh, the building of that scene, as it were. And today is Adam Morgan from Hope's Fall, which I love Hope's Fall so much. I'm actually very excited because I get to play some shows with Hope's Fall next year in March of 2020. My band Taken and Hope's Fall are touring Japan. It's going to be so much fun. But Adam Morgan is the drummer of the band. And uh, Hope's Fall was very, very important to me. Once Taken started to kind of get out there and realize that there are other bands that are doing similarish things to what we were doing, you know, adding melody to the whole, you know, weird hardcore thing we were doing. It's, uh, yeah, I just like became obsessed with them. And like the satellite years is just a beautifully flawless record. And, uh, yeah, I want to have Adam on because clearly they're from North Carolina. So more on Adam in a moment. You need, there's, there's a few things I want to get off the top of my head. First of all, please rate and review the show wherever you are listening to this thing, whether it's on Apple podcast, Stitcher, Overcast, however you consume this podcast, please give a rating and review. It costs you it costs you nothing. I was going to say it costs you like two seconds, which technically it does, but just do that because it always helps the show gain visibility and more people, you know, will find it because of that. So please do that. And you can always email the show 100 words podcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate correspondence. And you know, if you don't like a, a particular episode, tell me if you love a particular episode, tell me, I'd love to have that, that, that feedback from you, the listener. Um, I'm going to the East Coast in a couple of weeks for a Taken show in Philly and New York City on November 8th and November 9th. So if you're in the area, please come check it out. In Philly, we are playing at uh, the Bowery Lounge. I can't remember. I apologize. This is bad. And then in New York City, we're playing in Brooklyn at the Kingsland Tavern, or I think it's just called the Kingsland now. But uh, come hang out. I would love to see you. And it would be really, really enjoyable for me to be like, hey, high five. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And you're coming to see my band. Great. Love that. 
Um, also a new friend of mine, uh, just recently emailed me and he put together a unbelievable documentary about David Bazan. You need to go to bazanfilm.com. He's touring around the country with it right now doing, you know, showings and screenings. And, um, the film is staggering. I never was a huge fan of Pedro the Lion. Uh, I have always been curious about David Bazan because I've heard him on a variety of other podcasts and talking about his, uh, you know, falling out of, of faith and there's just so many interesting things going on. So go to bazanfilm.com and once, if it's in your area, go check it out. I watched the film. It's a, uh, it's an unbelievable piece of work. So please go do that. And how am I doing? I appreciate that. There is concern coming at me from all angles in regards to my mental health and, you know, how things have been going. They're going much better than they were a couple of weeks ago. And I feel, um, you know, like I'm making progress, I'm visiting a therapist. I'm seeing a psychiatrist, uh, later on this week. And, um, you know, my job stuff is calming down a little bit. I'm feeling like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, I just feel, I feel grateful that I've got a lot of people that are, uh, caring about me because, uh, I don't know, it just, it feels so much, better to know you're not in this alone, you know? And that's what I encourage people, you know, a couple of weeks ago. If you are feeling, you know, hopeless or despondent or, you know, that you need a person to reach out to, I myself or there's tons of other people that are probably in your life from your friends, your family, you just need to let them know how you're feeling because otherwise people are in the dark and that is a sad thing. So always correspond, always reach out because you are not alone. We are all going through something. Some of us together, some of us independently, but we're all going through something. So... Anyways, uh, like I said, Adam plays drums in Hope's Fall. Great discussion, great conversation. He was actually at their practice space when he did this interview. And um, yeah, I just, I, I loved it. So here's a discussion with Adam. And of course, I will talk to you after the episode is over. It was one of those things where as uh, my band Taken started to like get out on the road and start to tour, I would get in conversations with people that, uh, you know, because obviously melodic hardcore is kind of its own, you know, subgenre. And so people that were fans of us would then also recommend like, hey, you should play with this band. And like <laughs> the constant refrain that we would hear from people is like, hey, do you guys know the guys in Hope's Fall? <laughs> I was like, and this is before we had played shows <laughs> together. I was always like, no, right. no. Like I was like, I, I know of them. Like I, um, I really hadn't checked out your frailty of words full length, but then knowing to speak of is where like, you know, you guys fully like got me and engrossed me. Um, but it was just, it was funny hearing that reflected back constantly. Um, and the thing that drew me to you guys was the fact that you were definitely zigging while everyone else was zagging where it's like not only from the music, but the visuals and like, you know, the, uh, you know, the lyrics, like everything was kind of set apart <laughs> from what else was kind of happening right. within our scene. And I, I have to believe that was obviously very intentional and deliberate from you guys where you're like, okay, we see where everyone else is going. Like we kind of just want to lead into this. I'm, I'm guessing that's, that's what you guys where your headspace was at. Right. Uh, I mean, not, not intent. It wasn't like a marketing move or anything sure. like that. Like, was it, you know, but it was just, I was just, it was just honest what our, um, kind of what our tastes were. And we never really felt like we fit in with the rest of the, uh, Jersey wearing, uh, 
tough guy, you know, hardcore. We were a little more artsy. We were a little more, we had a little bit more of an emo uh, background as far as what we were listening to and rock stuff. So, I mean, it just kind of, it just kind of fell where it was. And it was, you know, it, it wasn't something we intentionally tried to set ourselves apart by, you know, using that imagery or, or writing the way we did. It was just, you know, organic and it was just kind of a reflection of, uh, the, the stuff that we were into at the time. So sure. Sure. Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean to characterize it like it was this, um, you know, grand scheme of plans, but I, I know <laughs> it, you definitely have always have that kind of streak inside of you where, you know, you see what your you know friends and peers are doing and stuff like that. And you're like, Oh man, like what they're doing is totally cool. I just kind of want to put you know, our own twist on it. Like you said, organically, it's not like you were sitting in the, you know, the practice space and be like, all right, we can't sound like anybody else out there. What are we going to do? You know? <laughs> but Yeah. 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 It's not like, yeah, it's not like, well, perfect cleansing album cover looked like this. So we got to steer away from right. that, you know? So, <laughs> no. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Totally. But I, I just think that's what, um, you know, you're the organic representation of who you guys were. I think that, uh, you know, clearly set you apart and was able to attract, people to what you guys were doing because it was, you know, frankly, it was just kind of another option, you know, where it's like, Hey, right. if you don't necessarily like this, like you probably like some version of this. Yeah. I never thought about that, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Yep. Yeah. Cause not everybody is going, like you said, not everybody is going to be like, Oh yeah. The only bands I listen to are hate breed and earth crisis. And it's like, Oh yeah. Well, where do these, do I have any other choice? Like <laughs> where else can I go? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you yourself, were you born and raised in North Carolina or where did you come up? Yeah, I was born in Wilson, North Carolina, um, near Raleigh. And, uh, they pretty much, yeah. And then we moved to Indiana when I was like a baby, but I mean, I was, I was in Charlotte by the time I was going to kindergarten or going to kindergarten. So yeah, I've, I've been in Charlotte all my life pretty much. Sure, sure. And before I ask some follow-up questions about your family, let me try this theory out on you because I, you know, I've always been interested in the North Carolina music scene just because it was, I mean, especially from the, you know, punk hardcore side of things, um, you know, and even obviously like indie rock and all the great, you know, merge records and all that other stuff. But it, it, it was, it, th- certain things can only exist around you know, youthful environments and college towns are incubators for this sort of stuff. And I think that you can kind of point to almost every sort of, you know, whatever, whether it's like Lawrence, Kansas or Athens, Georgia, where it's like, well, it was connected to a college town. You know, you always had this infusion of young kids that were doing something, you know, weird in those areas or whatever. Um, I'm going to guess that like, as you got older and obviously started to go to shows and stuff like that, do you think that was kind of a, a part of why, your area was so, I guess, fertile for music or, you know, was it just kind of a happenstance of a lot of different things? Yeah, I guess maybe, but I mean, at the same time, those college towns were like, uh, I mean, speaking, you know, not as North Carolina as a whole, but Charlotte where we, you know, grew up and where prayer for cleansing and undying and all those guys came from, uh, you know, we were still like three hours away from like Chapel Hill and that's true. You know, uh, but, uh, yeah, definitely, you know, college towns do lend itself more to creative, uh, you know, uh, kids starting bands and, and things like that. But for some reason, Charlotte, 
just had, I mean, from, I mean, I'm trying to remember back to like 98, 97. And, uh, it was just this new kind of is when straight edge, uh, kind of came on the scene for us. Like we'd never heard anything about that, but there was already like, it just kind of blew up in Charlotte for some reason. And then out of that came all these kids that started these hardcore bands and stuff. So it was just, it was just a small pocket, but yet very, maybe not small, but I mean, this kind of, this scene that just kind of emerged out of nowhere. And then there was, there were these bands that just started popping up. So yeah, I don't, I can't, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say that that's, that's interesting because, yeah, I mean, you're right. I definitely can't lump Charlotte in with that because it's not like it was directly attached to a college. But that um, I find it interesting where you're talking about that, uh, you know, you know, straight edge definitely descends on scenes and obviously, it, you know, gets people involved and interested in subcultures and stuff like that. Um, and like you said, it wasn't like a huge you know, uh, a subset of your, you know, group of friends or what have you. But like, I imagine that it was like the people that it affected, everybody wanted to become like active, you know? And so like, even if it was just like 40 of you, you all 40 were doing things almost immediately. And then obviously that 40, you know, started to bring 60 and 80 and whatever. And it multiplied from there. Yep. And I think, I think a big credit probably was that, uh, Dave cried near or Dave Anthem, uh, that was the singer for prayer for cleansing. Uh, he was just so active in, in the scene. And he, I would say that he brought in a lot of bands from out of town, uh, to a club that, uh, would always get the good shows called Tremont, uh, here in Charlotte. That's sadly no longer with us, but, uh, I think his activism in Charlotte and just, pulling bands in to come play our hometown. And then that attracted kids from Winston Salem and the surrounding areas like Greenville and or Greensboro. And then it just kind of, it just kind of started merging all together, that whole area, Charlotte and Winston and all those areas. So I think Dave really had a, a big hand in kind of, uh, bringing awareness and bringing bands to this area and then this bringing awareness to the scene. And then it just kind of blew up from there. Sure. No, that's cool. Cause yeah, you definitely always need those, you know, whether it's a person, whether it's a venue, whether it's a band, like, you know, those things all need to happen kind of alongside of each other. Cause yeah, you know, without one of those elements, you're going to be missing something. Clearly if you don't have a venue, I mean, yeah, of course you can have like, you know, VFW hall and do it, do it like that. But you need to have, you know, that all of those things kind of functioning alongside of each other in order to grow. Right. Yeah. Um, anyways, turning it back on you, the, uh, you know, your, your family structure, you know, what were your mom and dad into and you know, what, what did that look like? Okay. Um, well we, me and my brother grew up, uh, in a very, very, uh, you know, Christian household, Southern Baptist uh, household, you know, go to church every Sunday and Wednesdays. Um, there was, there was a little bit of music. I mean, I remember, I remember my dad had some LPs and, you know, my mom was always singing and, but, um, and they got divorced when I was in like third or fourth grade. And then my mom raised me and my brother, uh, you know, from there. 
But uh, yeah, we were just uh, just Southern Baptist youth group kids uh, growing up. Sure. And uh, you know, I wouldn't say I would say that I was I was definitely music was definitely around, but it wasn't as prominent as it is now. Like in my family with my child uh, right now, you know. Sure. But yeah, it was always there. Right, right, right. You, yeah, you were aware of its presence. And I mean, you know, getting raised within a church, like you have no choice but to obviously reckon with music, you know, like you have to understand yeah. what, you know, hymns and all that stuff are. And so you're like, okay, like, I, I, I yeah. can understand that people are passionate about music. Right. Um, and so I, I have to ask just because I come from a, um, a home of divorce. I mean, my parents were divorced when I was like four or five. So like third or fourth grade, um, you know, you were obviously way more aware of what was happening. Like did, um, you know, was it one of those things that like you really, like it, it affected you pretty deeply or you reckoned with it a little bit later? Or how did that kind of ping pong around your head? Um, it definitely, it definitely probably uh, you know, affected me in more ways than I'm even aware of right now. But yeah, back then when it happened, yeah, it was devastating. You know, I mean, <laughs> you're in third or fourth grade and, you know, your parents sit you down one night to tell you that they're not going to live together anymore, you know? And, uh, yeah, but I mean, I mean, I mean, I remember the initial blow was, was heavy, but then, I mean, you know, kids, kids are resilient and they bounce back from that kind of stuff, you know? Yep. And then it was just, it was just the new norm. You know, I didn't, I didn't dwell on it much after that, you know, it's just like, okay, well, this is, yeah, I don't have a choice in this. This, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I live with mom and then on Fridays, uh, dad comes and gets me and my brother and we spend the night with him and eat pizza and watch movies. And then he drops us back off on Saturday. You know, that was just the new, the new norm. Right. Right. Um, and so you, you know, as you started to, you know, kind of find who you were and kind of what you were into, you know, coming into like junior high and stuff like that. Were you, um, attracted to music by that point? Were you, you know, like a sports kid? Were you like a science dude? Like, where'd you find yourself? Yeah, I'd say going into middle school, uh, is when music kind of really started to, uh, you know, I, I started paying a lot more attention to it and it started becoming more of an everyday, you know, thing for me. Um, just, um, being turned on. I remember, uh, my uncle would come down for a, a family visit probably in like maybe fifth or sixth grade, maybe seventh. I don't remember. I, I, I I've lost a lot of memory for some reason, <laughs> but, uh, I remember he came down he was a really, he was like one of the really cool uncles that me and my brother really looked up to. And he came down for like a Christmas visit and, uh, he had a uh, Phil Collins CD that he was listening to. And I was like, yeah, this, this is awesome. You know, partly because we looked up to him so much to, to our uncle and, uh, you know, if he thought something was cool, we thought something, we thought the same thing was cool, you know? Um, so that's when, I first heard Phil Collins and then like he, uh, he left and then I like begged my mom to take me to the, the CD store down the street to go buy a Phil Collins CD. And then that from there, I, I got home, put in my CD player. And then it was, I was just every day after school, I just go up to my room, shut the door, put Phil Collins on and start, you know, 
I started getting the desire to play drums. I started air drumming and just studying the CD liner and, and just putting it on repeat. And then from there on, it just music, I just started, you know, digging into more stuff. And then, you know, my friends started playing a major role, uh, you know, in discovering music and, and, uh, and then just kind of snowballed from there. That's I, I love the story when people have like that, that family member that kind of introduces you to something, you know, cause like it, yeah. it's always, honestly, it, it, you know, it usually is like kind of the, you know, the, the weirdo fringe uncle, not painting your uncle like that, but it's like, you know, the person you right. see maybe once or twice a year bringing something you're like, yo, what is this? Like, well, what's the grateful dead? I don't understand. <laughs> like you just, you get exposed yeah. to something you wouldn't get exposed to, you know, with your friends or whatever. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I so, mean, before that, I was before that I was just kind of listening to like Weird Al, you know. Like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was cool and funny, you know. Totally. But uh, yeah. But then it got a little deeper and more musical, and you know, it just has it just has to hit at the right time with the right person with the right music. You know, it's kind of like a trifecta of just old things hitting all at the same time, and then like a switch going off in your head, and then that switch never turns off again yeah. like it just <laughs> yeah it's just that's the oh, path right? yeah. <laughs> yeah i do i do like you mentioning weird al because I, I think something especially young boys the intersection of music and comedy is so important because like you're oh yeah it, it, it's like i think every like i don't care what generation you are like you know i i have to believe that young kids are still getting influenced by, you know, the fusion of music and comedy. It's like, you know, whatever, like, you know, the Lonely Island guys and like that sort of stuff. It's just like, it will always exist. <laughs> it's so good. Yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You, you over there, you need band merch, right? Who doesn't? I've got like 95% of my wardrobe is all made up of, of band merch. And a lot of it is actually coming from this company called Rockabilia. Oh man, I love Rockabilia. First off, Stop what you're doing. Visit their website, rockabilia.com. Use the code PC100Words, and that gets you 15% off of your order. So find whatever it is you're looking for. They have really, really amazing stuff, like old stuff that you're like, oh, I wonder if they have something from this band. Oh, boom, look at this. They, they, they got a closeout sale or whatever. But they have like half a million items. They have so much rad Halloween spooky stuff that they got going on from, you know, bands like Misfits and Ghost and all of that cool stuff that, you know, you just like when you're wearing it around Halloween, you're just like, I am on point. I am on theme, on brand, so to speak. But uh, they have fast customer service, great shipping. Um, It's just it's a, it's an amazing company and it's all independently owned ships from, uh, I want to say that they're, they're warehouses in uh, the Minneapolis area. Um, I just, I can't say enough good things about this company and it's all officially licensed. So the bands get paid off of each and every th- single thing that they print, which is awesome because there are so many horrific bootlegs out there and it, uh, it breaks my heart because obviously these bands aren't seeing any money from that. So not with Rockabilia again, use the code PC 100 words and you will be able to get 15% off your order. So thank you, Rockabilia, for your continued support. And now here's the rest of the show. And so you, I I mean, obviously being a drummer, like was that kind of the first initial attraction or did you kind of like dabble with guitar first and then start to realize that, you know, drums were more of your interest or was it drums and that was it? Oh no, it was always drums. I never picked (laughs) up a guitar. I mean, like starting starting in middle school, or maybe I guess elementary school, maybe, uh, 
when when they start like when you got old enough and they started introducing you know you have the option to take band if you want to now you know as an elective. I remember um, the band teacher coming into our classroom, you know, kind of pitching to the students like, "Next year you'll be in fourth grade and you can join the band." So you know, if anybody wants to sign up, you know, choose your instrument and and I remember like. She's like, now, if you want to play drums, you have to do a, you know, if you want to play like the snare drum, you have to arrange like a special time to come like try out for some reason that was different than like trumpet and all that stuff. And I was super shy. I wanted to play the snare drum so bad, like in band, but like that, like me having to go and do that extra little bit to like try out for snare drum. I was like, eh, so I went with trumpet. And then I played trumpet from like fourth grade all the way to like fifth grade all the way to senior year in in high school. Oh wow, um, that was a <laughs> that's a yeah. long commitment. It wasn't like a couple years. You're like, yo, I'm in this. Well, yeah, I mean, it was. It just turned out to be like an easy elective, and I was good at it, and uh, which was nice because it taught me how to, you know, read music. You know, as far as like quarter notes and whole notes and, you know, just kind of keeping up and reading. And, uh, mm-hmm. it kind of gave me probably a sense of rhythm, uh, somewhat, but yeah, it was, it started off with trumpet, but then, yeah, after I learned that Phil Collins wasn't only a singer, but he also played drums because I do have beat man. When I got into Phil Collins, I went and bought like VHS tapes of his live shows. And then to see him and his drummer, Chester Thompson playing like these like 10 minute, just drum solo duet kind of things. Uh, that was like the coolest shit I'd ever seen. And that's like, that's when I knew I wanted to play drums. I mean, first, like I wanted to, not just, I wanted to play cause I was already drawing, like scribbling drum set sketches in class on my notebook. And, but, um, that's when I was like, mom, I need a drum set. Right. Like, probably this like, is it fifth sixth grade yeah seventh grade something like that and that's uh, and that's usually the instrument that most parents uh dread like the idea like so like your, your mom obviously was was cool enough to be like okay like we'll we'll put this in the basement like this is what you'll do yeah she was super i mean yeah she, we even uh, hope some of the first hope salt practices later on were at my mom's house at her at my house you know that's great and um she would just be like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to go shopping or I got some stuff to do. So <laughs> yeah, she would just get out of the house, you know, totally. And that was great. that She facilitated that. And I love, I love that story too, because there are so many parents, uh, you know, across the country, probably even the world where it's like they allow their kids bands or, you know, ridiculous projects to like make a lot of noise. And parents are just like, okay, that's fine. Like, you know, it looks like a Sunday from, you know, one to four, looks like I'll be, uh, you know, going to the mall or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and now that I have a kid, I totally get it. Like I would be so down for that. Like if my daughter came up to me, you know, in a few years and was like, I want to have friends over and I want to, you know, we want to play music. I, you know, I'd be like, great, because that means you're not sitting there on your iPad. You're not watching tv you know you're not you're doing something creative you're doing you know you found a passion and like that's super important you know as a parent to see their kid you know fall in love with something like that especially when it's creative like that so 
I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't, I've never talked about it with my mom, but I would imagine that she would just, I imagine that it would be like, you know what? My kid wants to make a shit ton of noise with his friends. Like it's better than so many other things he could be doing. Like I'm going like, yes, I'm all for it. And if I have to go out and leave the house for a few hours, like so, so be it, who cares? You know, like, Right. I'll buy, I'll buy the, I'll buy the hot pockets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd be, yeah. I'd be absolutely thrilled, you know? Right. Yeah. Totally. I'll get, I'll get the lemonade. I'll get the snacks for you guys when you take a break. Like <laughs> very excited for you to be here. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Um, and so then I'm guessing it was like late junior high, early high school is when kind of like independence, you know, like punk and hardcore and that stuff started to kind of seep into your life and you start to be able to go to, you know, like whatever, start to experience shows on like a small level. Yeah. Um, I guess like even like late middle school, um, you know, at that time I was, you know, we all, all the hopes, all guys, all my friends were my, you know, going to my church, we were all youth group buddies. So, you know, so going back a little bit from Bill Collins in like fifth grade or sixth grade, then, you know, you start getting into rock and, but, you know, we could only listen to, or at least me, I could only listen to the Christian uh, versions of rock. So that's when I, that's when me and my friends, you know, discovered tooth and nail records and just ate up that entire catalog, you know, from everything from like alternative rock. And then it became punk rock. And then it became, you know, emo or ska. And then hardcore was kind of the last, like hardcore metal was kind of the, the last uh, thing we kind of fell into, um, you know, and that went on for like, like I said, probably like sixth grade through like early high school where I was still just exclusively listening to the Christian versions of those genres, you know? Um, right. But what, then what was your, then slowly well, sorry, yeah, to interrupt your train of thought, what was your, I, I guess kind of like introductory one or two bands into that, uh, that whole tooth and nail scene as it were. Oh man. Uh, definitely a band called an alternative band called plank. Eye. Oh yeah. Uh, driver eight. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it started off, it started sure. off, uh, alternative rock, yep. you know, and, uh, it was plank. Eye, driver eight. There was a, a band, they weren't on tooth and nail, but they were on another Christian label. They were called poor old Lou. Oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and uh, so bands like that, Polar, Polar was a huge influence on me. And they were, uh, they started, they were like alternative rock, but they were they start they were a little bit smarter, a little more interesting. Where I dare say, going into like maybe the more post rock, post hardcore. Uh, I mean, kind of like quick sandy. Mm-hmm. but they did a little bit like some time changes and it just wasn't, it just wasn't that grunge butt rock. It, it started to be a little smarter, a little heavier sure. and a little more thought out. Uh, so that kind of, that was a major uh, kind of bridge leading into like punk and like hardcore and stuff like that. But um, yeah, all the, every single band on tooth and nail back in the, late nineties, uh, mid to late nineties, I was just eating that stuff up and it was, it was kind of shaping my musical taste. And then by then I was playing drums and just kind of emulating the drummers for bands like 
polar and especially roadside monument mm-hmm. um, and bands like that. What was the, um, you know, cause I, I, you know, I've, I've met a lot of people like yourself who, uh, you know, obviously have this kind of very large dividing line. Like you're allowed to listen to this sort of music. Like, you know, you could listen to the Christian version of this stuff. Um, I guess when did, when were you able to kind of bring in bands that obviously were outside of that context, the more, you know, quote unquote secular music, when were you able to kind of bridge those two gaps? Not saying that you weren't interested in it, but you were just like, no, I, I know my lane. I gotta, I gotta stick to this so I don't get in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was probably like, uh, ninth, 10th, 11th grade, uh, just slowly each year, a little more of the, uh, non-Christian stuff coming in. You sure. know, I, I, I hung out with the other punk and hardcore kids at school, you know, that didn't go to church. And they were, uh, one of my buddies, Adam Baker, who ended up, uh, playing drums after me in Hope's Hall. He was, uh, he wasn't a church kid, but he had his finger on the pulse of, uh, like really good hardcore music and stuff like that. So I remember like, it was probably in like 10th grade, I was in a class with this guy and he was wearing like, you know, the hoodie and the, you know, the hardcore punk kind of dress apparel. And, uh, I remember finally just getting up the courage and being like, Hey man, like, what kind of music do you listen to? You know, God, I mean, he might've had like a patch or something that like was a band I'd heard of like earth crisis or snap case. So sure. it wasn't too like, didn't listen to much of it. But so any, we started talking and, um, then we started trading CDs, you know, every week and he would bring me, he was the per- first person that showed me stretch Armstrong. Which oh yeah. Huge. Funny because they weren't Christian. And then yeah. they end up signing the tooth and nail <laughs> afterwards. Totally. Know, and, uh, that's so but, cool. So he's like, he brought me Stretch Armstrong, and I was like, you know, stuck it in my room after school and was listening to it. I'm like, holy shit, this is great. And then I brought him Strong Arm, you know, and that blew his mind. He was like, oh my God, this yeah. is incredible. And he's like, dude, if you like, if you like Strong Arm, and then he brought me Shy Haloon, you know, then the non Christian version sure. of Strong Arm, who <laughs> totally. shared members, you know, shared drummer. So it was just, we became great friends and it was just a swapping back and forth of, of CDs. So, and at that point too, um, you know, me and my church friends, they were, they were always a couple years older than me. They were more my brother's friends that I kind of swooped in and adopted and took away from, <laughs> from them somewhat, but they were, they had, uh, they were always able, well, some of them were able to listen to, you know, non-Christian music, but they were big pumpkins fans and, home fans and so they they would also trickle in stuff too um so yeah just as i got older into the high school years it just you know i I was a little bit more open-minded about oh my god this this music's not good for me to listen to but you know for the music's sake i'm gonna listen to it and then i just you know i i had a hard time coming to terms with listening to non-christian music i thought i was being yeah sinful right right yeah yeah, like, yeah, so it took me a little while to open up to all the stuff, but then then it just, I mean, the, the gates opened, especially with um, the discovery of, like, emo music and all the stuff coming out of the Midwest, like Mineral and, mm-hmm. you know, like, bands like Promise Ring, Texas is the Reason, like, all these, like, polyvinyl crank records, uh, you know, all that stuff, so... sure. I was listening to all these genres were just hitting me and they were all hitting the, the right spot for, 
certain things I wanted to hear, but the, I would say the emo scene has always been at the top uh, for what I'm for what kind of gets me going. Sure, sure, and was able to you know pull you in the direction of like yes, like I I I can listen to this music. It's okay. I'm not being this. You know, <laughs> I'm not exactly. I'm not betraying my soul by doing this. <laughs> in a world where everyone is confined to their homes. Society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Bridge Nine Records Hardcore, one of the best labels around, in my opinion. Chris means it. You can actually dive back in the archive of this show, and you can hear a really, really fun and insightful conversation I had with Chris. Uh, gosh, it was maybe four years ago, but uh, it was probably one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. So Bridge Nine always cranks out the hits, and this month and next month is no shortage of that. Agnostic Front, two pre-orders up right now. One is an exclusive 7-inch, 2,000 copies called I Remember. There is an exclusive B-side on that, which we'll listen to a little bit in a moment, but uh, they just know what they're doing. Not only Agnostic Front, but Bridge Nine. And they also have the pre-order up for The Godfathers of Hardcore, an unbelievable documentary put on by uh, Ian McFarland, who's the director, and it's just a great film. There's a bonus live 7-inch that comes with it. It's just a a great piece that you can pre-order. So go to b9store.com. You can find out all the details and you know what? Let's listen to a little bit of this Agnostic Front B-side and your your hair will be blown back, okay? front they just they just know what they're doing and i i love the band so much so anyways go to b9store.com pre-order all the stuff they even just recently launched a new beach slinging lp up for pre-order right now so find out all about that at b9store.com thank you for your continued support bridge nine and now here's the rest of the show is ostensibly hopes fall kind of like your first band as it were or did you play in other bands earlier that obviously you know didn't uh didn't get out of the garage yeah, no, we, um, I was in a band before Hope's Fall with, uh, with the original bass player. Okay. Um, and, and Josh, uh, Josh played in it with us for a while too. It was, it was like a rock emo band. I was like maybe 15 years old and those guys were like 17, 18, 19. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we were called one amazing kid and, uh, 
that was my first uh, time ever playing drums with other people in a band. And we played, we played some little, like, sorry, a little couple of local shows. Um, and uh, that's kind of where I, you know, kind of grind my teeth on just the whole, what it was to, to listen to and to play with other people. And uh, that went on for maybe a few years, and then it just kind of it kind of morphed into Hope's Hall uh, with a couple other buddies. Um, at that point, like nineteen ninety eight, I was a junior in high school, so that's kind of when Hope's Hall started writing, and we'd kind of found the sound we were gonna be, and started to uh, write and try to get get on shows. Sure. And did you, you know, as Hope's Fall started to, you know, kind of gear up and, you know, play some shows and start to be more active, was like, you know, did you, I guess, have a vision for what you wanted to do from a, you know, life perspective? Like, you know, did you care about school? Were you like, oh, I'm going to go to college and like, these are the things I'm going to do. But, you know, the the band is also important, but there's also this other th- aspect of my life that I need to concentrate on, too. Oh, I had no vision at all. Sure. <laughs> the day that I was currently living in. <laughs> I mean, sure. no, I had zero aspirations as far as like, I couldn't even fathom that. <laughs> I still don't to some degree, but yeah, no, it was just, uh, it was just all about that. Just thinking about the band nonstop. I mean, I just, I, we, I just fell deeply, deeply into it. And that's, that was always on my mind at school. Like I can't wait for school to be over so I can go practice today. Or, you know, that was, that was the only thing. The only aspirations I had was that I want my band to make a CD and I want to play shows. And that was, that was all that was on my mind. That's all I wanted to do. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. That, it, it is. I mean, uh, that's the luxury that you have as a kid where you're just like, well, yeah, I just don't, you know, uh, total hand to mouth immediacy. Like this is all I care about. Once you get consumed in a yeah. culture, you're like, yeah, that's fine. Like, I know I need to do these things, but like, you know, the band, I mean, come on, this is the, this is the best. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Um, and did you, you know, as you started to like, you know, play out as far as like touring and stuff like that, did you immediately like that experience or was that something you had to warm up to? No, I'm immediately like, you know, it started off just playing shows in Charlotte and, uh, and then, you know, like the first like big thing was like, Oh, we're going to South Carolina to play a show, which was still only like, you know, an hour down the road, hour and a half. But then it was like, Oh my God, you know, we're, branching out of Charlotte. This is, this is the next step. This is great. You know? And then, uh, yeah. And then like we started doing weekend tours because the guys weren't, you know, I was still in high school when they had started college. So, you know, it was like during, uh, like spring break or winter break, you know, we'd string together, like maybe like three shows, like we'd go a little bit, you know, either Northeast or a little bit West, we'd, you know, just Atlanta, Nashville, keep it all within like a, you know, three or four hour drive each time. And then we'd come back just in time to get back to school. And then that was just like, I came back to school just feeling like I was so superior to all my peers because I had spent 
spring break touring, you know, and it was, I mean, it was just so exciting and it was everything, you know, I wanted to be doing and it was great. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, how did your, you know, I guess mom and dad react to you starting to, you know, take this so seriously. And I, I presume kind of, you know, put other things, uh, you know, aside, whether it's, you know, school or jobs, career, that sort of stuff, you know, did, were they kind of like, well, you know, as, as long as Adam's passionate about it, that's what we care about. Yeah. Um, my dad didn't really have, I don't, I don't really remember much of an opinion of his, you know, Sure. Uh, he never really sat down and talked to me about school or anything. I'd see him once a week. Uh, mom, my mom was a school teacher by profession. And, uh, I think it was probably a little disappointing for her, but she also knew that she probably also knew that I just wasn't, I mean, I did what I needed to do to get by my entire high school career. You know, uh, yeah, I, I know that I was a lot smarter than, uh, what the grade showed, you know, I was, you know, I was like a C B kid, you know, like a, mm-hmm. like C plus B minus kid, just, just right down the middle of the road kind of guy that would just, I knew what I had to do to, to pass. And she could, she could kind of see that that wasn't in the car. It's college. You know, I just showed no interest. She probably, probably wasn't thrilled about it, but she never really, never really harped on it. You know, she was just like, okay, I see, I see what, Adam's wanting to do and you know, just let him do it. You yeah, know? Just be safe. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. So that's cool. That's know, cool. She was just, yes. Yeah, she never tried to, she never tried to talk me out of, uh, you know, going and doing shows. I mean, I remember there were, there were times where, you know, I'd be like, okay, mom, uh, spring break, the guys are wanting to go play these shows. We're going to, the last show we're going to play is going to be on a Sunday in Nashville. And she's like, okay, just, you know, just be careful, but you gotta, you have to drive back and go to, you know, you gotta go to class on Monday, you know? So if you can make that happen, then fine, you know? And I was like, I promise I will, you know? So we drive all the way back after the show from Nashville on a Sunday, get home like at, you know, like three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning, just in time to go, you know, for first period. And, uh, she's like, you know, that's fine. Just, you just, you can't miss school, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, Live up to your obligation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So she was, yeah, she never, never tried to talk me out of like, you need to stop the band and focus on this or anything like that. You know? Yeah. Looking back, she was very supportive, you know, in a way that wasn't like, you know, all she had to do was just let it happen. And that's all the support I needed. You know, I didn't need her to be at every show or, you know, selling CDs, you know, to her, to her coworkers or anything like that. Just the fact that she let it happen and didn't try to change my mind otherwise, uh, was, was all the support that, you know, a parent really needs to show, you know? Absolutely. Totally. Um, I wanted to uh, dig in a little bit specifically with the, uh, the satellite years, just because that, um, yeah, not, not only does the record still hold up and is still, you know, very influential to a lot of people, including myself, but it was such a weird thing because it was like, there were so many different elements of, you know, I mean, the fact you guys signed to trust kill and like, there i mean this is obviously like in the infancy of the internet but it felt like a real palpable excitement for 
the uh, you know the release of this record and um i mean especially too it's like oh you're recording with matt talbot like there was all these weirdo things that existed of like oh here's this like melodic hardcore band that you know in amidst of all of this sort of like you know straight up traditional mosh metal core like anyways i, I set it all up by saying like the that that idea of you know this record being like important i guess did you feel i guess that that kind of uh you know weight of importance for you guys to have those opportunities or was it just like oh man we're excited to explore these options yeah no more like that it okay. never felt yeah it was never like a we never felt like this is super important that we get this one right like it hinges on this like we were just excited to be able to go record the new stuff we were working on. That's all it was for us, you know, like, like looking back and hearing other people's perspectives about that time and about the right, like it's interesting. And maybe it was a good thing that we didn't understand that at the time, because it might've influenced how we approach things and, you know, could have overthought some stuff, but I do, I was clueless the entire time. All I knew was like, damn dude it's been a while since the ep came out and uh we got all these new songs and we just want to we just want to lay them down you know sure yeah just just another recording i mean like you're excited about the recording but yeah there wasn't anything um, yeah beyond that we were super yeah we were super excited to be on trust kill like we felt like we had kind of stepped up on the next step level of uh of the band's you know career and that was super exciting to be on a label that was already established that had bands like Poison the Well and 18 Visions and stuff like that. And it was it was super exciting to be debuting a record for that label and going yeah and going to Matt Talbot's studio and recording. Um, that was that was a very exciting time uh, in the band. But as far as like I I didn't feel any pressure of of having to like. Uh, you know, serve up. Like, I didn't feel like this was a make or break or anything like that. I didn't feel any pressure. Like, yeah. Oh, we have to, we got to follow up end of an era. And you know, all the songs that were on that EP that everybody kind of seemed to love. So, yeah. Yeah. I get, I, I, I probably, yeah, I kind of mischaracterize that. I think just the, um, the idea of the excitement where it's just like, you know, you, you see a band kind of, you know, like you say, take the next step up and like work with a larger label and, you know, like have a larger budget to be able to record and like all of this other stuff, you kind of just like notice. So like, yeah, definitely not a, a pressure, but an anticipation of like, Oh, let's see what these guys can do with this. And then, you know, satellite years comes out and everyone was just like, Oh wow. Like this is, you know, very uniquely different. And, you know, forgive me for this, like really insanely specific question, but I remember <laughs> the, and you can completely, you know, either confirm or deep this rumor i remember um and and this is more so like music industry nerd stuff because it was like you know the word started to filter out where it's just like dude hope saw's recording with matt talbot and it's like twenty thousand dollars to do the record like you know word was spreading where it was like this this was trust kill's most expensive record to date to produce or whatever like all this stuff was coming out i was just like huh interesting so you know can, can you either confirm or deny like oh yes like you know it was a very expensive record especially you know knowing what we know now or whatever um or was that like even remotely accurate <laughs> no yeah I, as far as it was it was expensive yeah i mean it was like if i remember correctly yeah i think it was around like 20 grand okay. uh 
maybe maybe even a little higher. But as far as like, I don't know if it was there. I don't know if that's the most money at that point yeah. they were dropping on bands. <laughs> right, uh, right, right, right. You know, I, I have to look at their books, but yeah, I mean, we were just. Uh, yeah, it was. It was when we, you know, we got the 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 budget, and we were like, "Holy crap!" You know, that's that's amazing. This allows us, like every other time we'd recorded, we only done the the first full length and like the EP, and every time we recorded, it was just like a few days, you know, four days and, a weekend. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You just power through it, and you just get it done. And this time, we had like the luxury of like a few weeks of being in the studio with like one of our musical heroes, you know, at the board. So yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a lot of money to us and I'm sure a lot of money to Trusco at the time too. But, uh, yeah, that, that part is correct. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's cool. That's, I, I just, yeah. and I remember too, because, uh, or the reason that that sticks out in my mind is just because that record did like uh, sonically and like how the songs were captured. It definitely felt like, whoa, this is like next level. You felt like, dude, I, I bet you they probably spent longer than like a week on this record. You know what? It's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. No, yeah. We, but even, even saying that, like, I still kind of, I remember being, a, I hate to say this, but I was, a, I was still a little bit disappointed how the, uh, the album came out because at that time in that scene, like, all these bands started, that was when all these bands started getting that super crisp, like compressed, super professional sounding recordings, you know, sure, like sure. under oath and Norma Jean and all these bands, like, like all these producers and uh, engineers had kind of figured it out and like had all these, these good toys. And yet like, so like I was hearing records like that and I was like, yes, like this is sounding so good, you know? And then ours comes back and I, I'm so grateful for it now, now that I'm removed, you know, years from that, like everybody was coming out with all these super, just chunky, super compressed sounding, so professional. And ours had this organic raw, uh, kind of feel to it the you know from a, from a production uh sure. stand and uh that was something i didn't quite appreciate until years later but i was i was still wanting that like i wanted to be on par with all the other bands but like i said looking back now it was kind of like a i don't know i, I can't imagine hearing the record any other way now and i'm, yeah. I'm super glad we went the way we went with it yeah totally well because I, I mean i think to your to, uh, you know, n not even devil's advocate you, but it's just like the, you know, the Hope's Hall has always been about the uh, space. <laughs> and, and I mean, not only right. visually, but just the band. And so it's like your that record in particular just felt like you guys were, you know, literally playing in outer space. And so, like, I can't even imagine the idea of like <laughs> trying to, you know, confine outer space in a box or <laughs> like, you know, like you're talking about with the kind of compression of it. But yeah, I'm sure at the time where you're just like, oh, yeah, records, our records don't sound like what is currently like, quote unquote, on the market. Not like you're reviewing it as such. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like we couldn't go to like Will Putney and. Yeah. get that you know <laughs> totally that, no, 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 i mean he is yeah he's talented um, yeah but that's not yeah like yeah totally, totally. That's, exactly. that's really really, really totally. funny we just we chose you know that studio a because like of course we found out matt talbot from home had the studio so it was like oh my god we, let's go there and also 
they recorded um they used that studio to record um shiner's album the egg sure we were a huge fan of uh still am but uh we're like holy shit you know the tones they got out of that studio matt talbot owns it we can get him to engineer it and produce it like that's a no-brainer you know but (laughs) totally we didn't we didn't think at all like (laughs) i mean we paid for it and we're there and recording and we had never once thought to look at let's go listen to some of the things that matt has engineered or produced we didn't care at all no just like we're just going with him like who cares if he doesn't even know what the fuck he's doing like and yeah. you know but luckily it worked out great you know yeah oh no for sure yeah you're just like oh yeah all these things combined like of course it's like that <laughs> yeah dude take taken was very much the same way like we recorded our 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 demo and our first seven inch and first ep at double time studios in san diego for the main two reasons of unbroken's life love regret was recorded there and blink 182's cheshire cat was recorded there we're just like yeah oh of, yeah you're like of course we're gonna go there like these are two monumental records of course <laughs> so yeah i exactly. understand i understand exactly what you're talking about um yep taking a step ahead to you know a types there you know that record obviously is a very uh you know divisive record for people that are you know fans of hopes fall from the satellite years and before that was kind of the transition record where you brought in a lot of new people who had never paid attention to hopes fall and then you always obviously also kind of turned the page on people where it's like listen if you want us to just be a screaming band like that's not where we're going to be anymore um Transition records are extremely difficult for bands, and obviously, you know, it fractures bands into a bunch of different directions. Um, was that a, uh, I mean, I know that, did you depart shortly after that or before that? I can't remember the timeline. I left about two weeks before we went into the, before they went into the studio to go record it. So I wrote eight out of the 10 songs on, or I wrote the drums, you know, as part of the writing process when we, wrote a types but uh yeah i bailed <laughs> right yeah. before they went to go record it well no i, I and that that was kind of going to be my question of like it's it's a difficult uh process when you're putting something like that together knowing that like hey we're proud of this and like you know we like this but you know we know that this is going to be you know uh divisive in one way or another whether it's with our fan base whether it's internally within the band um so i'm guessing that time was pretty difficult for you Oh yeah. And, and everybody really, I mean, yeah, we, I mean, that was when we started writing a types, we knew like, let's, let's do something new. Like, you know, we got, you know, Jay, had, Jay saying, or, you know, he was our vocalist for satellite years, but he came in when, I mean, we were writing satellite years with Doug, our former vocalist, you know, so Jay kind of came in, we were still like, you know, we were a hardcore band, you know, that sang and, but, you know, he came in doing the screaming vocals because that's kind of what we had already had in place. But then, um, you know, we were finishing up the last song for satellite years, which was, uh, decoys like curves, the one where Jay primarily sings on. And, um, we thought, you know, that, I think that was a big turning moment for us. Like, Oh, hey, we got another option here vocally on the table. Uh, you know, because our previous singer Doug, you know, he had no aspirations of actual singing melodic parts. You know, but then Jay was like, you know, we were trying to finish up the last song for Satellite Years, and Jay was like, I, I hear like 
I can, I, I'm going to try something, you know, like I won't, let me try some singing, you know? And, uh, and so going into a types, it was kind of like, we had this new tool on our Swiss army knife, you know, uh, this, this guy can, this guy can write melodies vocally and he can sing them. So, and at that point, I mean, we still all loved hardcore, but at that point we were still very into like, you know, hum and pumpkins and, and Caven had made the switch to like just full on space rock band. And we loved that shit. So we were like, you know, let's just, let's take a shot at this. Let's try just doing something that we're more into, you know? And we know, we all knew the risk we were taking, you know, but I mean, we were, we were playing for us, you know, we didn't, we didn't feel a commitment to, to the fans. Really. We didn't sure. feel like we owed them, you know, we just wanted to play what we wanted to hear. And we had Jay writing vocal melodies and we thought, you know what, let's just, let's try to structure these songs a little bit more. You know, this, this hook that he's singing is so good. You know, it kind of sounds like a traditional, like chorus. So let's come back to this riff later on in the song, which is something we never did when we wrote. It was always very linear songs, you know, just part, 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 A, B, C, D, E, F, G, end it. And then we started messing around with it. Like, let's do part A, part B, come back to part A, come back to part B, you know? And so, yeah, that's when we, you know, we, we consciously started to make music in the style of the bands that we were really enjoying. And yes, we knew that it was going to divide, you know, the fans, but at the same time, you know, not to sound like assholes, but we just, I mean, we made that choice because we didn't care. We were interested in making heavy, still heavy, still melodic, but kind of go a little bit more forward and try this new thing out. You know, stuff that was more exciting to us. Sure. So uh, that, well, I, that was I think, kind of the mindset. And I, I think you hit the nail right in the head when you, you described it. You like you just had another tool in the arsenal. You know, it's like, especially yeah. too, where you know when when you start bands when you're 16, 17 years old, and like you know you're you're still an idiot. You like you have no idea not only about like life in the world, but like you can, you don't know what you can do. And it's like yeah, once you start to figure out that like oh yeah, like this person can do this thing. It's like, you know, whether it's like the guitarist being able to solo or whatever, it's like all that stuff. You just start to learn more as you get older. And then it's like, Oh yes. Like we have another tool. Let's try that. Let's deploy this. So yeah, I totally, I, I get exactly what you're talking about. Um, and so right on. The, the, the idea of like stepping away from the band, like, you know, I, I presume that was, like you said, it was difficult for you to, you know, arrive to that conclusion. Um, but you know, a lot of people have difficulty when it comes to, you know, leaving the thing that they have so self-identified with and then kind of being like, well, who am I removed from this band? Like, did you go through any of that or was it just the, the simple removal of, you know, like playing in a band being the, the, the most traumatic for you? Yeah, I went through a little bit of that. Yeah, my a lot of my identity, you know, for my, you know, that I saw for myself was I'm the drummer of Hoopsfall, you know, and uh, this is what I do, you know, and I tour and all this. But at the same time, uh, you know, I started, um, you know, the, the the band guys used to be the only dudes we we used to hang out together. That I would hang out with them, they would hang out with me, and those we were each other's friends. You know, that was our entire life. But it, 
you know, at that point I was a couple years deep into my job that I was at and I started making these other connections and friendships and had this, you know, started having this other life outside of the band, you know, hanging out with other guys. I had, you know, I'd moved out. I had roommates and like, I, I, I started to feel like I had this other identity now. Like I was cool with it. Like I was cool with going to work and I had these set of friends and we did what we did, you know, on the weekends. And that, that made the decision easier. Um, but it, you know, I mean, what it really came down to, you know, if I'm being 100% honest is that, uh, you know, we toured heavily, super heavily on the satellite year stuff. I mean, just constantly gone. And, uh, you know, at the time I was in a relationship with a girlfriend, uh, you know, for two or three years. And, um, you know, I think it just really took a toll on that. And we ended up splitting. Um, and then, you know, when we were writing a types and, uh, or getting ready to go into the studio and then, uh, you know, I knew that there'd be another heavy touring schedule, coming up after that, I think I was, I had started dating another girl, um, at that point. And I think, I think I just started getting scared that I was going to lose that too. You know, I was stupid, you know, when I was young and, you know, I was girl crazy and I had started this brand new, exciting relationship with this, this, this new girlfriend. And, um, I was just kind of like looking down the road, you know, and like I said, I had this other, this kind of new aspect of life with these new set of friends and my job. And, you know, we were doing this style change and a lot of shit was just kind of piling up in my brain. And I just had to make a decision at that point. Like, do I want to risk losing this new relationship? Uh, am I ready to go out and go tour for another year and a half? Uh, you know, always be gone at that point I started becoming a little bit more important to my job. I wasn't sure if they were going to let me take off as much, you know? So it just came to a point where I was like, I was kind of, I had decided that I was going to leave the band, but I was going to wait until after we recorded a types to, to tell you about it. You know, selfishly, I still wanted to go to the studio and record the record that I had helped write, you know, but, um, we're about two weeks out of going to the studio, we were practicing, putting the final touches on some of the songs. And, um, uh, at, at some point, you know, we were kind of having a rough time at practice, kind of coming up with, you know, some parts and we were just kind of getting down. And I remember Josh turning his amp off and putting his guitar down and just, you know, going around to each person in the room, you know, cause we were getting ready to leave to go record. And he was like, man, what do you guys think? Is this, is this good? You know, like I like it, but I, I mean, are we, you know, we we're just, it was starting, it was, it was like second guessing time, you know, cause it was getting down to the time that we needed to go record. And, uh, and like I said, at that point I knew I was quitting, but I was trying, you know, it's just keeping it to myself. Yeah, totally. But, uh, but I mean, he, you know, he, he asked Dustin, you know, like, what do you think? And Dustin's like, yeah, man, this shit's awesome. You know, and Jay and, He's like, yeah, this it's great. We just, you know, and then he came to me and I like, I just, just like, just with that being in my mind and him kind of asking me straight up, like what I was thinking, like, I just, 
I just couldn't hold it back anymore. You know, I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like uh, I, I plan to, I plan to be done with this when we're done recording, you know, and that, that kind of ruins the rest of practice. And <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, well, once you, yeah, once you open that can of worms and everyone's just like, Oh, Oh, okay. I guess we're having this conversation now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bad timing, but, well, I mean, there's, yeah, I, I, there's never, there's never yeah. a good time, especially too, like with bands, like I don't care how professional or unprofessional you are, you always usually have like the next, you know, two to four months kind of planned out, whether it's shows or whatever the case may be. So it's like, oh, like there's never a good time. It's not like, oh, cool. We don't have plans for a year. I'll exit now. Like, <laughs> it's like, no, there's always, yeah, something. right. Exactly. There's always something happening. <laughs> Uh, you know, I told him, you know, I was like, I still want to go. I still enjoy these songs, you know, and I, I, I think it's cool, but, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I'm the piece, and I'm, I'm cool with who I am. Like, I don't feel like my identity, you know, I feel like I'll be fine. Like, I, you know, I feel like I can be at peace with the decision, you know, and, you know, I still want to go have a good time in the studio. I still want to kill these songs, and, and like, all right, you know, that's cool. We'll figure it out. You know, obviously the next guy in line with our, our good friend Adam Baker, the guy who I was telling you that I was trading CDs with in high school. Yep. He was a phenomenal drummer, just phenomenal. And everybody, I mean, it was just like, they had never had to think about that before. Like, what if we lose, you know, our drummer? I'm like, who will we get? But like, it was just like, it was known that he'd be the next guy. And, uh, so, you know, I thought I was going to the studio with them, but uh, I think Josh came over like, like a couple of days later after that practice. And I told him, and, uh, you know, he's like, hey, you know, Adam Baker's going to play drums for us. And then, um, you know, since he's going to be the new drummer in the band and he's going to tour eight nights and he's going to, you know, we, you know, we think of a good idea if he makes this record his own and he plays on it, you know. And I was like, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And which is, you know, I was looking forward to going and recording the song. I was like, you know, that's fair enough. You know, if he is going to be doing work and doing the touring, yeah, you know, you understood you where know, I short amount of time, yeah, learning songs. But you know, if, if he thinks he can do it, then that's great. Yeah, this record needs to be in it. So, you know, that that's when he took it over and they just started playing with him. Yeah, absolutely. Um. The, uh, you know, the, the last thing I want to hit on was the, you know, this is more directed personally at you where, you know, you, you know, you love vinyl, you, uh, you know, you have a, a great Instagram account from that perspective, um, you know, as far as just like sharing your, not only your love for music, but your love of the, uh, medium of vinyl. And I myself identify with it because I love vinyl as well. <laughs> um, right. How something I'm always interested in, especially for people who are, are collectors from that perspective, how is your kind of collecting evolved over time where it's like, you know, I went, f- I mean, I personally went from like, oh, I loved seven inches to like, now I wish I could put my seven inches in the middle of a trash bin and set them on fire. Cause I hate seven inches, but like, <laughs> you know, like how do you, do, have you noticed a uh, kind of changes, like not only in the style of music that you're purchasing, but like, have you, you know, evolved from your collection Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I played catch up for, for years, you know, um, trying to get the, the old nineties, late nineties emo stuff and, and all that. And there's still some things out there that I want to get, but yeah, when I was, when I first started collecting, it was, uh, it, yeah, man, it was just overwhelming. You just had to, 
snatch up everything. Yeah, it was very important to me that I got the rarest variant. Um, yeah, seven inches. Uh, I was kind of the opposite for me. Like seven inches, I didn't really dig because they didn't look as cool, uh, you know, on a shelf. You know, it didn't take up all that, you know, the space for the 12 inch stills. The art wasn't as big, you know, um, you had to get up and flip it every couple of minutes because it only held like two songs on the side. But yeah, it, when I started, I was, you know, I was, I bought into the whole, you gotta get the most exclusive variant. You gotta buy this record because it's hyped. Even if you're not, you know, that much of a fan, I just felt like, Oh, I don't want to miss out. You know, I don't want it to go out of print. I didn't grab it, even though I don't, you know, so as I, you know, the, the longer I went collecting, the more I was a little bit more honest with myself. And, uh, it became more about, okay, do I need this record? Do I love this band enough that I feel like my collection would be incomplete if I don't have it, you know? And, can I settle for waiting for my local record store to get a copy in on black that's limited to like 10,000 copies as opposed to pre-ordering the red vinyl that's only, you know, like that became less important. It became more about just having some copy, you know. And then I really got into seven inches as I was, you know, started collecting more because those are where all the little, you know, the B-side, the little jewels are that, uh, you know, the little rarities from your other bands, you know. Um, and I really appreciate those. A lot of those songs that maybe not, has been, you know, that aren't on the streaming services or um, just little nuggets of rarities and stuff like that. So I definitely uh, love checking out the 7-inch use section. Um Whereas opposed, I would just, uh, you know, earlier on, I would just skip right over it because I didn't care. But yeah, now now that I've got, you know, as the years have gone by and I've kind of played catch up and I've got all the the old records that meant so much to me, you know, and kind of shaped, you know, the style of music that I enjoy listening to and playing. Uh, now, it's just, I just try to keep up with those handful of bands that, I just really love, um, and it's, you know, the record buying process has slowed down, uh, dramatically. Um, yeah, no, as it, I've older. It, it is interesting once you reach that. I mean, cause I, I'm 38 and I imagine we're roughly around the same age where it's like, yep. you, you, you run into that wall where it's just like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, f- for the most part, like I've got all the records that like, I feel like I want and I need to have as opposed to, you know, whatever five to 10 years ago where it was like, you know, it felt like drinking from a fire hose. Like you, you're like, I, I, yeah. literally, I, I literally can't buy enough records. Like there's no, there's uh-huh. no stopping this. And then, yeah, you get to a point where it's like, okay. Like, I mean, I, I remember for myself, like a couple of years ago, I started to get really, really into, and I still am like soundtracks and, you know, collecting that stuff on vinyl. And obviously that's become a huge, you know, trend within the, you know, music industry from that perspective. Um, and so like, but then I, after I got into that, I told myself, I'm like, listen, I can't, I can't all of a sudden, like five years from now, get super into jazz and start collecting jazz records. I'm like, dude, this has to be like, you know, punk, hardcore and indie rock. That's fine. Soundtracks. That's fine. I can't open a whole nother subgenre Cause then I, my collection will be, you know, it's already crushing, but yeah, it's so yeah. ridiculous. It, I feel the exact same way, but I allowed myself to, uh, 
<laughs> go down that route, not with jazz, but with like, I don't even know what you'd call it. I guess like post rock, like ambient, uh, modern oh, classical, yeah. uh, kind of stuff, you know, like cigarettes and like, of course. And then like, you know, like hammock and then like all these, like, like all these like European yeah. and, uh, slow, slow, but slow like, meadow. Like I know. Modern. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 I feel you. So like now, yeah, like I thought I was all called up, you know, and then this, this new genre just kind of just, uh, a light went off in my head and it's like all I crave now. Like, <laughs> yeah. so I'm like, I'm like back at square one, discovering this new genre and trying to like find like the best of the best of like the shit that really like speaks to me. And like, yeah. So now like I'm, I'm, I mean, it's still not, the well's still not as deep as like, you know, emo punk and hardcore for this genre. Thank God, because I couldn't afford to, you know, yeah. uh, to, to, dive into another genre that fucking immerse but uh yeah yeah now i'm not like lately like seriously like my purchase history if you could somehow like bring up every record on all like the last year or so it's like all this vibe like just zone out vibing instrumental modern classical stuff that like is all i want to listen to these days so you never know you can't I know when your tastes are going to change and then you got to have it on vinyl. I know. Never. (laughs) Yep. Never, never say never, Adam. Especially. Yeah. (laughs) Especially for music like that. It's like, that I think translates better anyway. uh, On vinyl. Like, yeah, it's true. Yeah. You could have like, yeah, you get hardcore records on vinyl. You know, it's great and everything. And I own some myself, but it's like, that's, that's probably, vinyl's probably not the best medium, you know, for that style of music, you you know you want something that has space and more, a little more tone and atmosphere that you, you know that can really bring out the uh, nuances that you want to you know get that warm sound from vinyl. You know, it just kind of there's there's certain records that just or certain kinds of music get I think um, sound better. You yeah. know, no, totally on vinyl. You know, totally, totally. So. Well, uh, I really appreciate your time, Adam. This has been super fun, and yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for for getting specific and nerding out with me. Yeah, thank you, man. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> no problem, dude. Okay, thank you, Adam. That was a great chat, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your day, out of your practice schedule, to come hang out in this podcast. And um, yeah, I hope you are enjoying this this themed month of North Carolina. I really like it because. I kind of imagine that if you listen to all these interviews back to back, you kind of start to see the, you know, the the weavings of a scene, as it were. And I just, I love to trace stuff back to when things kind of started to kick off and begin. So anyways, uh, what do I got next week? I have John Tuttle, one of the three brothers that were in Code 7. And if you don't know Code 7, holy moly, I, I am so excited that you get to be educated on this band because they were such an unbelievable band and often get overlooked now and it breaks my heart but yeah so john tuttle he is the bassist of code seven and we have him on the show next week so boom there you go north carolina month continues oh man all right well until then please be safe everybody hey miles yes it's jack from work yes hi did you know that we host a daily news and culture podcast where people can go to get caught up on what is happening are you yes? Are you confused about that? You're talking about the daily zeitgeist. I just to wanted show to that make sure you knew and that everybody knew that you could listen to us every day, twice a day, 
talk about what is happening and they could learn everything without feeling the life drain from their soul. Yeah, I think at the Daily Zeitgeist, we like to give people a balance of just enough news that they feel informed and just enough laughs that they're not overwhelmed and can have a decent day after listening. So guys, listen to the Daily Zeitgeist on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are given away for free.